Let us begin. Grab your Bible and open to Luke chapter 5. We encourage you to always have the scripture with you. If you don't, it's in your liturgy. You can check it out there. If you want to hold the Bible, there are five Bibles on the welcome table, and you can grab one of those. But Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. And before I jump in, I just want to, I want to pray for our time that God would speak to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, speak to us in your word. Help me to say what is right. Help each of us in our thinking. And Father, as we learn your word, we, we learn of Jesus. We hear about Jesus. In our hearts, help us to love and receive Jesus this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 7, 27. It says this, After this, he went out. He went out. All right, students of Holy Scripture, including Magdalene, who's nice and loud studying the text. What should we ask, maybe, before we dive into this passage? What are some questions maybe we should ask? It says, after this, he went out. Well, maybe we should say, after what? After what? And maybe we should ask, who is he? And then perhaps we should say, went out from where? These are all things that Luke thinks that we know when we're reading his passage because he thinks we've read the whole thing. Okay, so we're jumping in here. So we need to know after what, who is he, and at, where do you go out from? Let's answer the who is he question first. This is Jesus, the Son of God, right? In Luke chapter 3, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And then Jesus began his ministry. And in Luke 3, in Luke's gospel, Jesus' ministry begins with teaching. He begins teaching in synagogues. And wherever he's going, he's teaching. And he's teaching with authority. And the people are marveling at the way he teaches. This is Luke 4 when he begins his ministry as a teacher. And then Jesus begins to mark his teachings with miracles and exorcisms and healings, doing miraculous signs and wonders. And as he's doing this, it's catching the imagination of the people. Who is this Jesus guy that's clearing out hospitals? Who is this guy that's teaching with authority unlike anything we've ever heard or seen before, but it also gets the attention of the religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes. He, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, which is like a class, like a, a room where people would gather to study God's word. But that belongs to the scribes and the Pharisees. That's their territory. But here's this guy from Nazareth coming in and he's preaching in a way they've never heard before. And he's saying things that they're not sure about. And so from all over the land, Pharisees get together and scribes get together and they walk to find this Jesus guy. And so that's who we're talking about. Now the passage begins Luke chapter 5 verse 27. It begins with after this. And we said, after what? Well, Jesus is teaching. And there's all kinds of people gathered to hear him. People that want to receive his teaching, even want to be healed by him. And there's also a bunch of 
Pharisees and scribes, leaders of Israel, gather together to see what Jesus is saying. They're being critical of him, investigating what he has to say with kind of a critical eye. And he's in this room and it's packed, okay? There's nowhere else to sit, nowhere else to to be, to stand. Nobody else could fit in. And if you look just a couple verses before we begin, you see what I'm talking about. When Jesus heals the paralytic, see, a, a paralyzed man, his friends carry him. Oh, Jesus is at this house. Let's go. He'll, he'll heal you. They carry him in faith to the door, and then they can't get in. But they don't give up, right? If you've never read this story, it's really cool. You should check it out. But they, they say, you know what? Let's just bust a hole in the roof. And we'll lower you down in there. And you ask, well, did you bring like pulley system and things like that to get me down there? I don't know if they thought that far ahead, but they run up onto the roof and they dig a hole and they lower this man down before Jesus. And the text says he saw their faith and looked at the man and he said something pretty shocking. Man, your sins are forgiven. Well, if you're the man hearing that, blown away. All my sins are forgiven. But if you're a scribe or a Pharisee and you hear that, you've got issues. And really, that passage about the paralytic, it's all about who has the authority to really forgive sins. Who has that authority? And the Pharisees ask, they even say, hey, you're blaspheming here, Jesus, because only God has the authority to forgive sins. And Jesus says, yeah, that's right. Because Christ knows he's the second person of the Holy Trinity. He shares in the divinity of God the Father. And he says, here, to show you that I have that authority on earth. Man, pick up your mat and walk out. Your sins are forgiven. And so Jesus forgives the man's sins in front of the religious know-it-alls. That's after, after this. The two stories that we're looking at, are the, the paralytic and then the passage we're looking at, they are tied together in Jesus' life. They happen back to back, and so Luke puts them in his gospel this way as well. And then we say, he went out from where? where? Well, that's really simple. He went out from healing this man. Presumably, the crowds follow him and are with him. He, he goes on. He has just healed a man who is paralyzed, forgiven his sin with the authority of God because the man showed faith in the person and work of Jesus. And our passage happens just after that. And you're like, man, we spent 10 minutes now getting to our passage, but it's so important that we understand what just happened. Okay, that's why we went through that. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Wow. If you are a sinner, if you've committed any sin in your life, if you're struggling with a sin even right now, what we're studying this morning should get your attention. Sin is any desire, thought, word, or action that's motivated by selfish ambitions rather than an aim to please God. In our Anglican Catechism, it says that sin is self-centered rebellion. That's what our catechism calls sin. And the catechism says that sin leads to lawless living, fear, death, and judgment. 
That's sin. We've all sinned. We've all committed things against God that have been driven by selfishness. And so this passage should have all of our attention right now. There's someone walking around who says he has the authority to forgive sins. He's proven it by healing a paralytic. This should have our attention. So let's continue then. Verse 27, it says, I actually keep opening my Bible to Genesis instead of Luke. I wonder why. He says, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax booth. This is just brilliant, okay? Because let's talk a little bit about a tax collector for a moment. Levi, what would he be like? A, a Jewish man collecting money from Jewish people to give to the puppet king Herod, who would then take that money and send it to Rome, to Caesar, okay? That's what's going on here. Let's talk about him in the first century. In this time, Rome would sell the right to collect taxes to the highest bidder. You could go into the tax business, and if you promised Rome, I'll get you the most money, they would give you the job. And then you would be let loose in your area to collect the money that you promised to get. I'll get it. But there was no oversight for a tax collector, no laws to govern them, so they were free to take what they promised, and then they, they need a little, right? They needed to have a profit and have a business so they could take whatever else they needed or they thought they needed to survive. One historian that was writing around the time of Levi, he said that tax collectors were free to exploit their customers. Usually they're very wealthy because they're taking way more than they promised to get Rome and they're putting it in their pockets. John the Baptist, he told tax collectors, stop taking more than you need because you're stealing. Remember that? In Luke's gospel, tax collectors come up several times and they're lumped in with thieves, extortioners, the unjust, and adulterers. They're in that, cat, that group, they hang out together. Pharisees and scribes of the Jewish people used a tax collector as the supreme picture of someone who's out of fellowship with God. Someone who's not in Torah fellowship, not in the community, that's a tax collector. If a Jewish man were a tax collector working for the puppet king Herod, giving money to, Israel, to Rome, Pharisees and scribes would have said, he's working to destroy Rome. He's cooperating in an effort to take down Israel, is what I meant, to destroy Israel. I said Rome, but I meant Israel. Pharisees would not fellowship with tax collectors, wouldn't be around them. Tax collectors were called, they were unclean because they dabbled in unclean things. They hung out with sinners, but they also handled Gentile money. They, they were stealing they couldn't go to the synagogue. They weren't allowed to worship in the temple. And if a Pharisee was with a tax collector, he too would be, by association, considered unclean, and he'd have to go through this ritual ceremony to then be able to continue his role as a Pharisee, especially to teach in synagogue and worship. But above all, a tax collector was a sinner. If you asked your rabbi, your Pharisee rabbi, what is a sinner? The Pharisee might just look over and see Levi and say, that's a sinner. 
over and over again in the Gospels, tax collectors are lumped in with this generic term, sinners. Now remember, we just talked about that Jesus has claimed authority to forgive sins and restore people to life with God. He forgave a paralyzed man. He did this right in front of the religious leaders. And then Jesus walks out, presumably with the crowds following him, and he sees a tax collector. There's a sinner. He sees Levi sitting in the booth. For Pharisee, that booth is a symbol of everything they hate, everything they want to avoid. And it says, look, picking up back in verse 27. He saw Levi sitting in a tax booth, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. When a Pharisee sees a tax collector, he sees the ultimate traitor against Israel, the classic example of a sinner, and he goes the other way. When Jesus sees Levi sitting in the booth, he walks up to him and says, follow me. Follow, this means obey or come after. Jesus calls the sinner out of the lifestyle that Levi had. He says, stop letting this stuff define you. Stop following all this stuff and follow me instead. Let me define you. Let me reshape your life. You obey me now. And Levi gets up and he follows. Leaves it all. Oh, okay. God says come. Okay. Here I go. And here comes Levi. Friends, I pray Jesus in this moment is calling us as well. Calling me. Whatever we're clinging to that would be not in the course that Christ would have us follow. I pray he's calling us, follow me. And that by the Spirit, he'd give us the energy to stand up and follow him. You know, Levi would have been extremely wealthy, really lacked nothing in that sense in the culture. To follow Jesus, though, he's got to leave this lucrative career. And we might think he'd be sad to leave all this wealth. But is, does he look sad? Look at verse, the next verse here. 29. And Levi made him a great feast. He's celebrating. Someone saw me. Someone saw through all the stuff and called me. This Jesus guy, I'm going to make him a feast. He made him a feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. The religious leaders with their fancy clothes and ornate hats and high position and religious rules and traditions and self-centered cleanliness or self-claimed cleanliness would not dare call a tax collector, follow me, much less go into his home. But here is Jesus, follow me, I'll go into your house, I'll sit at your table. And this is what Jesus does. He's partying with Levi and others. Who do you have in your home for dinner? Who do we have in our home for Thanksgiving and holidays? Usually it's people we want to be close to. 
Yeah, like grandparents, family and friends, people we want to get to know more sitting at our table because around a table, really cool things happen. It's, it's a great place for conversation. It's a great place to laugh and share stories and get to know one another. That's why at Emmaus, for the first year of our existence, we had a lunch after every Sunday because it's a great way to share life together. And it's the same in the old, uh, when Jesus was alive, the table was the center place for, for life. One author said this, quote, if the home is a body, the table is the heart, the beating center of the home, end quote. In Bible times, in biblical terms, tables and meals and food played central roles at key moments in the history of Israel. Think about this. I mean, this is pre-Israel, but Adam and Eve are in the garden, and what does God give them? Abundance of what? Food. Lots of food. All the food they could ever want. When God meets with Abraham, Abraham and God go into a tent and have a meal together. That's pretty cool. When Israel is coming into Egypt for safety, it's for the provision of what? Food. They need food. When Israel is then saved from Egypt, the, the primary point of their exodus is a Passover meal. They celebrate a Passover. When they're in the wilderness, God gives them manna from heaven, and he springs water from a rock. He gives them nourishment, food, right? And then while they're traveling around and there's a tent, in the tent would be a loaf of bread called the bread of presence, which was a picture of God being present with his people on a table, much like a dinner table. The prophets talk about a time when God would burst into the world, bringing his kingdom to earth and being with his people, bringing redemption. And the prophets say, we'll have a feast with God. We'll eat with God. So meals are often tied to God's work in history God's presence among his people. Perhaps you're thinking of communion. For Jewish people, meals shared with others, it meant that you were investing into that person. You kind of wanted to tie your life to their life. Uh, M.A. Powell, he's a theologian, a Lutheran theologian. He's done a ton of research on the, what Romans thought about food and having people into your home for a meal. I hope this is fascinating. It's going to be helpful, I think. But when in the first century, if you have somebody into your house, you were making a social statement. You were saying, him and us, we're bound together now over this meal. And anybody at this table, they're in. Everybody else, they're out. Okay? So sitting at a table with someone was a statement. It was a teaching moment for Jesus. And he's sitting at this table. Levi throws a feast and Jesus reclines with him. And not only that, Levi invites all of his friends. What kind of friends does a tax collector have? Tax collectors. Other tax collectors. Other sinners. The Pharisee's going to call them. Why are you sitting with all those sinners? And there he is. Jesus is engaging with them. I can picture him in my imagination laughing with them, talking with them, eating and drinking, rubbing shoulders with them, sharing in this sacred moment of table fellowship, almost like God has burst down to earth from the heavens and is sharing a meal with his creation. Almost like, maybe just like that. 
And look at verse 30. How are the Pharisees going to feel about this? Well, just like their forefathers, they grumble. Verse 30, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you eat and drink with these people? They can't fathom sitting down with these kinds of people. The implication of the word sinner is a notorious sinner. That is a public sinner. Okay, so a tax collector and from a tax collector all the way to a prostitute. These are the kind of people that are notorious sinners in the New Testament. And Jesus is sitting at a table with them eating. The one proclaiming good news from heaven is doing it where? He's not proclaiming it in the temple in Jerusalem. He will do that. He's not proclaiming it in the house of the high priest. He will do that as well, the eve before his crucifixion. He's not with an assembly of scribes. He's sitting at a table with a bunch of people outside of fellowship with God, outside of the community of Israel, sinners. That's where Jesus is proclaiming forgiveness of sins. And not only that, who do the Pharisees and scribes ask about this? Jesus. They don't ask Jesus. They, they ask, ask the No. The disciples, that's right. I can always count on the kiddos to give me the answers, okay? You're allowed to speak up as well, adults. You could say the disciples. You could have said that. But you're right, Dalton. The disciples, they ask him. It's like they're afraid to ask Jesus. Well, I can't go in there. He's sitting. So maybe the disciples come out for a break or whatever. What is going on? Why are you sitting with these sinners? See, Jesus is not only eating there. He brought his disciples with him to show them, this is what I'm about. This is why I'm here. This is what you should be doing. He's teaching his disciples. But who answers? Who answers? Look at verse 31. That's right. And Jesus answered them. Hey, I see you're trying to get after my disciples. How about I step up and I'll tell you what's going on here. Jesus answered. He said this. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The late Reverend Leon Morris points out what we all know, that this comment about righteous is quite ironical. Righteous or righteousness can be thought of as being right with God. Being right with God. Everything's cool between you and God. And to have this righteousness, your sin must be set aside. It must be dealt with, gone forever, such that you could have this right relationship with God. And Jesus makes a comment. He says, hey, if you're right with God, you don't need me. I've come here to make people right with God. But if you think that you're righteous, you don't need the eternal, immortal antidote that I've brought as a physician. But again, the comment is ironic. The Pharisees surely presume themselves to be righteous. They are self-righteous, is what we would say. Martin Luther says self-righteousness is just trusting in yourself. You trust in yourself. Charles Spurgeon says it's trusting in your own merits. Jerry Bridges says self-righteousness is whenever you look at God and say, because of what I've done, you owe me, God. That's self-righteousness. The Pharisees and the scribes think themselves righteous. 
They're ceremonially clean. They obsess about laws and traditions. They have routines and disciplines. They don't eat with sinners, nor the likes of tax collectors. They they separate from that. They're counting on their works to make them right with God. That's what's going on. But self-righteousness is a lie from Satan. There's no amount of law-keeping that we can achieve to restore us to God. There's no discipline that merits God's salvific favor on us. There is no work we can do to atone for our sins, to atone for our self-centered rebellion. But there is one who has authority on earth to forgive sins, and that would be Jesus. He just told everyone that when he healed the paralytic. And the Pharisees are just as sick as the sinners inside the house, but they can't see the disease of sin in their hearts because they can't see beneath the surface of their self-righteousness. Reverend J.C. Ryle once wrote this, if we feel ourselves righteous, Christ has nothing to say to us. But if we feel ourselves sinners, Christ says, Repent. You see, those inside the house, the prostitutes, the thieves, and the tax collectors, and and the other sinners, they know they are sick. They're not pretending. They're They're not sitting at the table with Jesus trying to put on this face. They've they know their choices, their their occupations, their reputation. They know and can say. I'm sick. I need a physician. I need a heavenly antidote. And Jesus says, good news. I can make you well. Repent and follow me. Repentance is just the acknowledge that I'm a sinner and it's turning from that to the Savior, Jesus. With faith and trust, like the paralytic, like Levi, Brothers and sisters, I call on us each to leave any self-righteous, pharisaic thought behind. Jesus doesn't want to sit down at your table. Jesus doesn't want to sit down at your table and hear about all your good works. He doesn't want to sit down at your table and hear, hey, listen to how I keep the law all the time and how great I am. Yes, our law keeping can bless God when it's done in the life and light of Jesus Christ. But first, Jesus wants to sit down at your table and say, let's handle this disease called sin. He looks into our lives and he sees the mess. He sees the unrighteousness. He sees the sin. He sees how far we are from God and he says, I've come to make you well. Repent and follow me. And Jesus shows us the Father's heart. He leaves the throne in the banquet in the feasting of heaven above. He takes on human flesh. He unites himself to humanity, sick in sin. And then Jesus proclaims good news of forgiveness to those who are deeply sick. He enters into the home of sinners and he shares table fellowship with them. God in flesh, eating and drinking with those who have sin-sick souls. And then at his last meal with sinners on earth, Jesus takes a piece of bread and he breaks it and he says, 
This is my body. It's given for you. I'm going to give up my body for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And at that same meal, he takes a cup and he blesses it. And he says, this is my blood. This is what's going to be poured out to heal you. I'm going to shed my blood to save you. Whenever you drink of this, do it in remembrance of me. And then the Savior dies. He's tried as a criminal. He's mocked as a liar. And the Son of God, innocent of sin, hangs between two sinners. See, Jesus doesn't just sit and eat with sinners. He dies with sinners. And from the cross, his, as his blood flows down, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Forgive those who are sick. Heal them by my shed blood. When Jesus dies, the power of God, three days later, he's raised to life and he promises disciples, he says, hey, wherever you go, I'm with you to the very end. I'll never leave you. I'll be with you. So the ministry of Jesus, the Savior who eats with sinners, continues in us as we minister the presence of Christ to those who are sick. We live in Christ as we engage those who need the gospel. And here at Holy Communion, we receive the presence of Jesus. As we redeem sinners, we pull up our chairs at his table and he fellowships with us. And he takes bread and he breaks it. He offers a cup. And in our eating and drinking, he gives us fellowship with himself. This is what occurs around Christ's table. The same fellowship that Levi had, we have with Jesus. It's not because this table is special. I mean, it might be pretty, but we don't have the fellowship with Christ because of the table. It's not because of the linens or the liturgy or the candle or the words that we say that we have the fellowship with Christ. All of that stuff's helpful and important. But why do we have the fellowship with Jesus? Because Jesus, by His Spirit, is here, meeting with us, giving us His presence. Why do we celebrate communion? Because Christ is with us now. That's what's happening at communion when he gives us his presence as the antidote for our sick souls. I'm almost done. And at this meal we share in is a foretaste of the coming meal. The wedding feast of the Lamb. When all the saints who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus gather around his table and we feast in the house of the Lord. And so just two things to ask you first are you ready to feast with Jesus? Yes. Amen. Even this morning, to leave your tax booth, to leave the sin, repent, and come and feast with Jesus. And second, are you ready to invite Jesus to feast at your table? To be at your table in your home? To see all the mess? And then with the person who has Christ in you to minister the grace and the love of Jesus to those around your table, your husband and wife, your children? Are you ready to invite sinners into your home to sit at your table who need the love of Jesus? Better yet, are you ready to go to their house, sit at their table, rub shoulders with them and tell them of a physician 
who can heal their soul.